Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org, and please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. For this episode, I'm joined by Yvonne Sadovi of the University of Hong Kong. We talked about fish that gather to spawn in large aggregations. Those fish are often very important ecologically and economically, but traditional management practices don't do a very good job of maintaining viable populations. Also, they face a variety of major threats from overfishing. So let's get straight to the interview. Dr. Sadovi, thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, to start us off, I'm looking at the cover of the April issue of Bioscience, and I see a large group of fish, um, presumably spawning, moving directly toward the camera. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those fish and what they're doing. Oh, so this one is is a snapper. It's a reef fish. It's called the Kubera snapper, and it's one of the biggest snappers that there are, and it's in the Caribbean. And as far as we know, so this is a very important commercial fish, and as far as we know, the only way that this species reproduces is, is in, the, in these massive aggregations. And, and you can see in the picture, you can actually see where a lot of males and females have come together. They've just released the sperm and the eggs up in the water column, and then they dive back down to the, to the safety of the reef. Um, and what, what's been happening in many places in the Caribbean is that these gatherings uh, occur just for a very short time, for a couple of months in the year. And within the, those couple of months, it's just over maybe about a week. Um, so the spawning's very, very limited in terms of its time. And once these aggregations have been discovered, uh, they're very, very easy uh, for fishermen to be able to take a very large number of the fish in the aggregations. And so what we found is that where these are fished, where the aggregations are fished a lot and regularly, um, they start to decline, you know, less and less fish, and the fisheries decline a lot. So there's, there seems to be a very close association between loss of the aggregations and the loss of the local fisheries. And how far in general will fish travel to reach one of these aggregation sites? So a lot of the information that we have is for reef fishes because there has been quite a bit of – so these reef fishes are ones that associate with coral reef you know, habitats – and there's been quite a lot of tagging. The biologists or often working together with fishermen will tag the fish. Often they'll tag them when they're in the aggregations because you can catch a lot of fish in these aggregations. And then over the following year, there'll be people who do dive surveys or programs where fishermen are encouraged to return any tagged fish that they catch. Um, and so in that way, you can put together these maps and you can work out how far from the aggregation site uh, these fish travel uh, at other times of the year. So uh, it, again, this depends on on different species, but uh, the distances can range from uh, ten kilometers up to over two hundred kilometers. And what's amazing is that some of these animals just we've been lucky with all the work that's been done. There have been a few observations of this, but some of these animals. Uh, have been tagged on their home reef, in other words, where they live for most of the year. They disappear during the spawning aggregation time. Um, they may be seen at the aggregation, and then they come back to their home reef. So there seems to be quite a bit of homing back to, to where they live for most of the year. So they seem to have an incredible knowledge of, of the, the, the sort of sp a spatial knowledge of very large areas of reef. And do they return to these sites on a yearly basis? Yes. Again, with tagging studies, uh, what we found for a number of species is that the same individuals 
do go back to the same sites. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of samples of this, but there's quite a few now, and more and more people are doing work on this. Again, it's largely for reef fishes, but there is quite a bit of site fidelity. Um, and so it's, it seems likely that once adults have, have discovered somehow where to go to reproduce, they'll keep going back to those sites. Okay, and you mentioned in this article that these fish are more vulnerable than other species uh, to overfishing. Uh, what makes them so? Well, the, the species that aggregate to spawn, you know, they're, they're going back to the same place year after year. Uh, and you can have pretty much every adult within a local population going to these, these aggregation sites. And the aggregations themselves are consistent from year to year. So once you find these sites... Um, and these are important commercial species, and they're very obvious places to, to, to focus your fishing on. The aggregations are within a very small spatial area, and fishing can be extremely efficient. Uh, and it is actually possible to take pretty much every fish in these aggregation sites out. Okay, so you have the overfishing, which is obviously a lethal effect on the fish. Uh, but in the article, you also talked about sublethal or non-lethal effects, and I was hoping you could describe those a little bit. Yeah, so this is a, a very good question, um, and we've still got a lot to understand about these fish. So you can have you know, two effects. You can have one effect, which is the, the actual removal, the, the, the mortality, let's say, of the fish, which is just taking them out by fishing. So that's, that's, that's one obvious impact. Um, but there are sort of other impacts that as we come to learn more about the biology and behavior of a lot of these uh, species, we're really realizing that fishing itself or disrupting of social groups when they're reproducing or mating groups, let's say, when they're reproducing, could actually affect the number of eggs or the quality of eggs that they're, they're producing. And so in the long term, these non, I'll call these non-lethal effects, these non-lethal effects could lead to lower and lower production of, of young in the future. And it may be, it may be that these are quite subtle effects. And I think, um, so just some examples. So the Nassau grouper, which is a, a grouper in the Caribbean region, uh, it lives, I don't know, something like um, almost 20 years. It forms these social groupings, these small mating groups within the aggregations that have a very specific structure, a single female, which is followed by multiple males. And when you see big, healthy, intact aggregations, you can see a lot of interactions going on. But when these aggregations get very small, then you don't see the same intensity of interactions. You don't see the same intensity of color changes going on. And it's it looks like you actually sort of see less mating interactions. So, as I say, it's something we, we really have a lot more to understand, but there's enough indications of changes in behavior as a result of reduced numbers of these species that, that, that naturally and normally would aggregate in big, big groups to, to spawn. And you mentioned also, you know, um, with fish being removed that are of a certain size, that this might remove older fish. Did I read correctly that it could cause them to not be able to find the spawning site? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So there's, there's a number of things about size and, and the individuals you select from a from a from an aggregation. So one of the questions that that we still have is how is it that young fish coming to become sexually mature? How do they find these aggregation sites? I mean, for some species, there are very few sites within a very large 
within a very large area. So how do they actually find the sites? So we know from work with a range of different fish species that there is learning. In other words, young fish can learn from adult fish and they can learn migration routes, for example, from adult fish just by following basically. So if you lose older, larger, knowledgeable fish, let's say those fish that know the, the migration routes, if you lose too many of those from from an aggregation because they're being fished off, there's a very good possibility that the younger fish are not going to have access to this information, this, let's call it traditional type of information. And there's one reason um, where there's maybe, there's quite a bit of concern that um, if you try to restore a fishery by for example, doing restocking, releasing fish which have been cultured in captivity, releasing the young into the wild, and then hoping that they'll come together somehow to, to form these aggregations, that this might be extremely difficult if, if they have to have learnt some of these behaviours from adults. So, so having these large knowledgeable individuals um, uh, for a number of species seems to, to, to uh, be a possible reason um, that uh, these these young fish are able to to learn where to go. Okay, and I want to move shortly into some of the management challenges. But before we do, um, are there any other major non lethal effects that we should really touch on? Um, I think there's some been some interesting experimental work in herring, for example. That uh, herring, another one of these aggregating species, very large numbers, and and uh, when when mating occurs, that the males and the females. Are, are, are releasing large amounts of sperm and egg and there's experimental work that's shown that in the males if the uh, as they release their sperm their their milt there's there's a hormone that's that's released at the same time and that hormone helps to trigger and stimulate more spawning to occur and, and that's probably related to um, synchronizing male and female behavior because you do need to do that and if you don't have enough males, if you don't have enough sperm, there's a threshold below which you don't have enough of this hormone release to stimulate or trigger spawning. So there are these, these effects that seem to occur when numbers or densities get too low to, to be able to trigger the right kind of reproductive responses. So these are the kind of things we're learning. Um, I think also we're learning that... Uh, as fishing gears come into contact with with large groups of animals, they could disrupt these mating groups uh, that, that form, these little social groups that form, um, and and uh, the mating that occurs within these social groups. And since the spawning that occurs in the aggregations is often for a very short period of time, this disruption by fishing gear may may have could affect. Um, the amount of reproduction that actually occurs in any one spawning season. So again, that, that these are sort of possibly quite subtle effects, but over cumulatively over a long period of time could affect the amount of reproduction, successful reproduction that occurs in these in these groupings. Moving to the human side of things just a little bit, you describe in the article a homeostasis that results from consumer behavior, you know, wherein you would heavily fish a species and their numbers would go down. It would be extremely difficult to catch more of them and the prices subsequently would go up, which would then lead to less demand and the fish could recover. But that relationship seems to be breaking down, isn't it? Yes, it's quite interesting. I remember when I first started working on these spawning aggregations and my background is actually biology. I'm not a fishery scientist. And 
when I began to look at the way fisheries were interacting, this was my interest actually about how fisheries interacted with the biology of species and what the implications of those that that interaction was. So I was looking at these aggregations and I was seeing the fishermen. I was working in Puerto Rico at the time, and I, I kind of wondered what would happen. Um, uh, as these numbers went down. So I was very interested actually in the behavior. So I spoke to fishery scientists about this and, and they assured me at the time that it wouldn't be possible to fish these numbers of fish so low that it would ultimately cause some kind of problem for behavior. And the reason they said was that there's a sort of, I guess you could think of it as a bit of a safety valve, whereby if you, ha you can imagine if you have a fishery um, your, your, your boats go out, you're catching these fish and, and maybe you're overfishing. In other words, the numbers are going down because you're taking too many fish. At some stage, the numbers are going to become so low, the numbers of fish are going to become so low that it simply is no longer worth your while to take your boat out. Maybe the fuel costs too much or your crew costs are too high. And so at that stage, the fishery will switch to something else. So even if you push your fish population down very low, you'll never push it right down to the bottom because there's simply a safety valve that the fishery is no longer worthwhile to do this. And this has been part of fishery thinking, apparently, I was told, for a very long time. But one of the things we're seeing sort of in response to your market question is that as demand for fish has gone up, as more and more fisheries have declined over time, the price of fish has gone up and so even as populations of fish go down and numbers go down and it becomes more expensive to get the fish, because consumers are paying more or are prepared to pay more for fish, you can still keep fishing. It's still economically viable to fish populations once the numbers get very low. And so this is really, we feel, beginning to push some populations down to, to very, very low levels, um, levels at which we're quite concerned about recovery. And this particularly can happen with these aggregating species. They're particularly susceptible to this effect. Okay, so that's one way in which traditional management kind of falls short for spawning aggregators. Um, you know, what are some of the other ways? You know, how is management working out for these species? I think, I think with species that aggregate to spawn, I mean, there are many of them that are managed, uh, uh, particularly within temperate, the colder water fisheries, the, the larger commercial, very valuable fisheries. There is quite a bit of management of these fisheries. And the kind of management that's used is what I would call conventional fishery management, which would be things like um, you maybe control or license through licensing, for example, the number of fishermen who are allowed to fish or the number of boats in the fishery or the number of gears or maybe even a, a fishing season or a total allowable catch, the total amount of fish you can take out of the fishery each year. So these are what I would call conventional types of measures. And so they, they typically don't factor in the fact that th some of these species change their behavior over time. So at some times of the year, some of these fish are easier to catch than at other times of the year. And the fishermen are going to know this and they're going to use this as an opportunity to catch more fish. And so in many ways, current fishery management is not fit for purpose for managing aggregating species and this would be particularly true if in addition to the lethal effects these non-lethal effects that we've spoken about the sort of behavioral elements um, 
uh, are important for aggregating species. So really what I'm saying is that conventional management is not designed and has not been designed to consider these additional complexities of behaviors of the, the fish changing over time and of how mating behavior uh, might be affected by fishing. Okay, and then I guess the next obvious question is, what would a good management program for these aggregate spawners look like? I would say it, it actually depends on the species and it depends on the fishery and it depends on, on for example, the enforcement capacity, you know, the ability to actually police management measures. But what you don't want to be doing is taking too many of these aggregated spawners out um, from particular aggregations each year. So how you would do that would vary. Um, for example, in some of the tropical aggregations, uh, you might be able to have a seasonal protection that would protect the species for much or all of the spawning season um, rather than protect the actual spawning site. A seasonal protection would enable you to maybe control the market so you could actually do a lot of enforcement in the markets you wouldn't allow fish to be sold for example during the spawning season and that would give these animals a break so that they can reproduce and then you catch them and hopefully more of them at other times of the year so that's sort of one approach so i guess i would say in many ways we have the tools we can use some of the conventional tools controlling effort controlling fishing boats uh, controlling the number of fishermen. We can add to those conventional tools things like seasonal protection measures or spatial protection measures, protect the aggregation site if that helps with um, enforcement. And we can combine them, but we have to combine them in a way that works for those particular species. What really scares me is that we're not very good, I would say, managing natural resources when there seem like there's a lot of them. It's what we refer to as an illusion of plenty. You know, if, if you show a, a fishery manager or a politician or even many fishermen, uh, they know of these areas where there's lots of lots of fish. The kind of automatic response, understandably, is, well, what's the problem? There's lots and lots of fish. But if we know that those are all the fish from a very large area, there for a very short period of time doing what they have to do, which is to reproduce, and that a lot of them could be taken in one particular year. That's a totally different thing. And so I think there's a bit of a gulf we've got to get over in us as being biologists, being able to, to describe this, to convey this, to communicate this, to make it very, very clear that this management, whatever form it takes, must be done on these aggregations when they're still healthy, when the numbers are still large enough. And that is quite a big challenge. It's sort of a challenge of perception, I would say. So it's a case where, you know, you would still have large amounts of successful fishing, even as the species was utterly dwindling. Absolutely. And there's actually a, a, a sort of a nice term in fisheries science called hyper stability, where you, the animals, you can imagine you've got animals coming together to reproduce, they're, they're very, very concentrated. You've got quite a few boats on the aggregation fishing these fish, and they're getting very good catches. And reproduction is a, you know, one of the main biological imperatives. These fish, they're going to reproduce you know, whenever they can, and they're going to keep coming in. Even if the population around is 
declining, these fish are going to keep coming in and concentrating. And as long as you don't have too many boats, the boats that are on these aggregations over time, several years, for example, will still maintain very, very good catches. But those catches are not reflecting what's going in in the wider population. So your fishery management has to be very much aware if you're monitoring this fishery, not only of what's being caught on the aggregation site itself, those catches are, continue, are, going, to, are going to continue being good, but the fishery managers or the monitoring needs to be aware of what's going on in the wider population. Because what tends to happen is in fisheries, we, we can't count all the fish. In fact, you, you know, we, we have to use proxies or approximations of fish abundance. And the way we do that is by using this thing called catch per unit of effort. How many fish do we catch per unit time, per unit, I don't know, fishing gear? And when we're catching on these aggregations, your catch per unit of effort can be maintained high even if your actual population is declining. And so this is a very, very big risk uh, if we only use catches or catch per unit of effort on the aggregations. Okay, and what would be a, a better method of monitoring these fish? Well, I think knowing what's happening at the aggregations is important if those are fished, but we also need to be doing uh, monitoring of fisheries outside of the aggregations too, so the wider population uh, as well. So we need to be more, well, precautionary. We need to ensure that we have good information on the status, the condition uh, of these fisheries, uh, both on if on the aggregations if they're being fished, as I said, or uh, and particularly the wider population to understand what's ha happening in the uh, to, to the status of the population, the condition of the population over time. So definitely a need for more thorough monitoring and management. Um, do you have any final thoughts? You know, is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you know you'd imagine talking about? Um, I think the only thing that that we haven't covered, which is something I like to as a biologist cover. Uh, is the fact that these things are, are quite amazing. I mean, they are beautiful, spectacular. Uh, to actually witness them is wonderful. Th these are these are wildlife spectacles in, in the same way as, I don't know, wildebeest migrations. And, and often we don't think of fish in quite the same way, or at least I say we, a lot of people don't think of fish as having these fantastic spectacles. But to be in amongst tens of thousands of these fish when they are reproducing, they're all focused very intense, intently on reproducing. You can feel the energy in the water. You can feel, you can almost feel it in a sense or see the focus of the fish. It's, it's an amazing thing to witness. And that's a great note to leave it on. Dr. Sadovi, thank you very much for joining me today. Okay, it's my pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.